Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, as we continue our series in this very important and timely pastoral epistle. I'm going to read the second half of this chapter, starting in verse 12. Hear God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, you are calling us off the sidelines and into this good warfare in Christ by faith and love. And I pray that you would do that by your spirit speaking through your word this morning. You can, and we need you to. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember that when we began this series in the pastoral epistles, we kind of set the stage of where we're at. Paul planted this church in Ephesus, and then he left, and then he comes back in Acts chapter 20, and he charges the leaders of the church, the leaders of the Ephesian church, what will come. And this is what he says to them in Acts 20, 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now we can probably imagine that there were some there standing on the beach, some of these elders who were thinking, what on earth is Paul talking about? What does he mean that wolves are going to come in from our midst? I mean, they've experienced this brand new church plant. They've seen conversions. They've seen miracles. For the first time in their life, this house church is gathering weekly together, sharing prayer requests and burdens with one another. What do you mean that wolves are going to come? And what do you mean that they're going to to arise from our midst? Our very own members will do this to us. What, What could that be? We'll fast forward from Paul leaving them in Acts 20 to his penning of this letter in 1 Timothy and the worst fears are realized. False teachers abound. Immorality abounds. Men and women have made shipwreck of their faith. Two men have been handed over to Satan already. I mean, carnage abounds in this church. There are bodies in the wake of what's happening in Ephesus. And we cannot for a moment picture Timothy walking into this scene as a quaint Sunday school teacher who's going to tweak their curriculum. We're talking about doctrine, but we're talking about something that's desperate. Spiritually speaking, uh, Timothy is flying into this place in in a black hawk flying low into Ephesus, ready to wage warfare, according to verse 18. 
Now, part of me, as all this is happening, is still back on the beach in Acts 20 with respect to CPC. I mean, this wonderful church that we've been here for a year, and this is a warm body of believers. And I'm asking with some of those Ephesian elders, what what do you mean that wolves are going to come in our midst? I mean, I can imagine a couple of West Coast transfers um, coming in and stirring up trouble with their Birkenstocks and weed. But, But other than that, I mean... Or no offense if you're from the West Coast. Other than that, I mean, people in our midst, members who are here, friends and family, people who have joined together in gospel ministry, what do you mean that there are going to be false teachers in our midst? And what do you mean that they're going to come from our own membership? I I have trouble believing that. But then we remember that there has never been a body of God's people that has been spared members who engage in false teaching and false living. That has never happened in the history of God's people. You look at the people of Israel, they were plagued by false prophets and rebellious leaders. You look at every single New Testament church, and it was plagued by false teaching and false living. You look at Jesus, who handpicked 12 men to follow him and be his disciples, and one of those men made shipwreck of his faith. There has never been a people without a false teacher in its midst. They will always and forever be present, and we will not be spared. Now, these false teachers, they come in all shapes and sizes. They can be, as we often picture, this loud, obnoxious leader that's greedy for followers, that draws people away to a different kind of heretical doctrine. Those people exist. But false teachers can also come to us in the quiet, still voice of a friend across a cup of coffee who's excusing a sin that's in our life. Both of those are false teachers. They might come as a member of our life group who's encouraging us in a kind of guilt that suffocates us. However they come, Paul says, they will come. And the best defense is a good offense. And he charges Timothy, and as he charges us, when this storm rages, you don't buckle down and wait for it to blow over. You put on your life vest and you sail directly into this thing. To do so, to encourage us to this end, Paul is going to give us two very simple points today. He's going to give us first the gospel content in verses 12 through 17, and then he's going to tease that out into gospel consequences in verses 18 through 20. Let's start with the gospel content. Paul takes time in verses 12 to 17 to display the gospel, and he does it through his own life. As John said last week, we're we're dealing with a chapter that's talking about false teaching, but Paul spends the bulk of his time talking about true teaching, right? That's what he wants to talk about. We know so little about these false teachers because Paul just didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to tell us what is right and what is true and what is good, and he does that in these couple of paragraphs in four points. We're going to look at the four points, very briefly, of Paul's gospel that he lays down as a rubric, as a paradigm, as a display for all of us to see and know the true gospel. And to do that, Paul starts by talking about sin. That's the first thing he says. Now, he's already taken the false teachers to task in verses 8 through 10 and called them sinners and listed their sins. He's already, in verse 20, he's going to say that these two men are guilty of blasphemy. But he begins with a gospel that first turns the law and its demands inward to himself and his own heart. There's not a gospel we preach that doesn't apply first to ourselves. And so Paul in verse 20 calls other people blasphemers. 
But in 13, look, he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In verses 8 through 10, he calls others sinners. But in verse 15, he says, I am the foremost of sinners. There's not a charge that we can make when we stand under the law's gaze and the law's demands that we can make against another person that in some way or some form doesn't come back to us. Paul, in displaying this gospel, says, I must own the depth and the level of my sin. This is a trustworthy saying that you must get in your minds and your hearts. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners, not saints. He's coming for sinners. The gospel begins with sin. Paul can say that's a trustworthy statement because he got it from Jesus' own lips. Look at Luke 19, uh, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Mark two seventeen. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So any kind of teaching that begins with the innate goodness or the innate potential, or the innate fairness in a person that God then draws out and grows and builds upon is completely false, has nothing to do with the gospel that Paul is talking about, and will kill a man in a church. The first point of Paul's gospel is sin. The second point of his gospel is is mercy and grace. If we get this, if we recognize the enormity of our sin, that we are worse than we can imagine. For all our confession, there are things that are pressed so hidden in our hearts that we don't even know them. If we grasp the enormity of our sin that we can't imagine, we are in store for a mercy and a grace that meets us in the gospel that's better than we could ever believe. Paul says twice in this paragraph, I received mercy because that's the only way you get mercy. You put your hands out and you wait for it and God gives mercy and grace. Paul's laying this down because in chapter 4, which we'll get to, there are some who say, hey, I know how we can get access to God's love. I know how God will be loving towards us if we practice certain things like abstinence and asceticism. Well, if that's true, if you could get God's love by abstinence and asceticism, then the gospel would be a demonstration of Christ's fairness, right? We get what we deserve. We've demonstrated these things. God gives us his love. But that's not what Paul says about grace and mercy. Verse 16, he says that when Jesus gives these things to a sinner, it's a display of his perfect patience. Christ is perfectly patient patient with us. You know, patience is in the same family as mercy. If somebody offends you and does something wrong against you and you hold your hand of justice, you have every right to get revenge, get back, have your side of the story told, and you don't do that, you're merciful, but you're also being patient with that person. You're allowing that person to continue in a relationship with you. You're displaying patience to them. You look around a room this size And all you see are pockets of Jesus' patience. Places in our lives where Jesus has withheld his judgment because of his grace and mercy and demonstrated this perfect patience to us. That's why we're here today, this morning, because of the patience of Jesus. And where mercy is, verse 14, grace comes and overflows to us. Start with sin. We hear about grace and mercy. And third, faith. As sinners, we have access to God's mercy and grace through 
faith. Now, this whole paragraph is dripping with faith, but we can kind of miss it in the English because there's different translations. But every word I'm going to read to you in the English is connected to the Greek word for faith. Entrusting in verse 11, trustworthy in verse 12, unbelief in 13, faith in 14, trustworthy in 15, believe in 16. The recipient of grace and mercy receives it by faith. That's the only way to get it. If we understand the truth that we are sinners, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom we are chief, and we understand that he's taken the totality of that sin and put it on the cross, we have access to this grace and mercy by faith. We trust and we believe. That's the third point. And finally, watch this. Paul does not end the conversation at conversion. That's conversion, right? You understand sin, you receive grace and mercy, you have access to it by faith, you're converted, you're a Christian. But Paul does not end his gospel there. He goes on to sum up the entire Christian existence in just a couple of words, faith and love in Christ. That's the totality of our Christian faith. As a Christian, you have been brought out of sin and out of death. You have been brought into this marvelous light in which you are being overflowed with grace, as Paul says. You receive this through faith, and now the whole of your entire existence from now through eternity can be summed up in this little phrase in verse 14, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That describes who we are. This joining with Christ, this is not some cold doctrine that gets buried in a systematic theology textbook. This thing is on every page in the New Testament. It is a dynamic joining of us with Jesus and Jesus with us, and it changes absolutely everything. I love the book of Galatians. It unpacks so many of the themes that Paul is talking about here just in this one paragraph. He says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is, I've been joined to Christ. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is, now that I'm joined with Christ, the life I live, I live by faith. He goes on in Galatians 5.6 to say the only thing that matters for us in Christ, if we're in Christ Jesus, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith, love in Christ. Faith and love in Christ. Again and again. That is the entire Christian life. It's wrapped up in Jesus and it lives by faith. The just, the righteous shall live by faith and it walks in love. In Christ, we look upward in faith. We look outward in love. Our faith paints the world that our good works walk in. That's the totality of our Christian existence. And Paul has taken so much time to lay out this kind of gospel, this paradigm, this rubric for us, because it now becomes the measure which we set against every other life and teaching. Right? This thing is mobile. You grab this thing out of 1 Timothy and you take it with you everywhere you go. You get these four points of the gospel and you get them expanded in every place in the Bible like we just heard from the story of Noah. You understand that we're sinners, that we get grace and mercy, that it's received by faith, that we now live a life in Christ of faith and love. You get these things and you can take that anywhere you go. You bring it here on Sunday morning and you lay this gospel rubric down and you ask the question, is Columbia Presbyterian Church a place that takes sin seriously? If we don't, that's not the gospel Paul's talking about. 
Is this a place where we throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of Jesus? Is this a place that really believes we have access to that by faith? And is this a place that mobilizes us as a church towards faith and love? If it's not, trouble is at our door and it is your responsibility to bring it to our attention. That's a serious thing. You take this when you're hanging out with a friend and you sit down with this gospel rubric in your mind and you ask yourself the question, is this a friendship that takes sin seriously? Do we understand that we're sinners? Do we understand that we're saved by grace? Are we grasping that by faith or by something else? And is this a kind of friendship that sharpens one another to faith and love? If it's not, trouble is at our door. You know, the last place you take this gospel rubric is really the first place. And that is into our own minds and hearts. We're going to talk about in 2 Timothy 1, what we've already mentioned, that Timothy was plagued by a spirit of fear. No, no, exactly what that means. But we have an understanding that there are voices in Timothy's head that have nothing to do with the gospel. He's afraid, and Paul is telling him, that's not the spirit that we have. God doesn't speak to you out of fear. He speaks to you in love and grace. And so we understand readily that every voice that pops into our head is not necessarily Jesus's. But how would you know that unless you have this gospel rubric to lay down against your mind and your heart? And when you hear a whisper that says, if Jesus really knew how serious a sinner you were, if he knew how many times you were going to struggle with that exact same sin, if he knew what a lousy Christian would, you would become, he never would have saved you. You hear that voice in your mind and you start to believe it until you grab a hold of the gospel according to 1 Timothy 1 and you say, that is a lie. Because I know this trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and I prove it every day. The only way you know this is to throw the gauntlet down on this gospel. And when you do that, and when you meditate on that, and when you spend time in your word, and when you speak of that to other people, false teaching and false voices that spring up around us will stick out like a sore thumb. They don't belong here, and they don't belong in our midst because we can spot them, and we know that they're not true. Well, Paul is so energetic about this because he needs to get to the point of what's happening when that truth is being frayed. What are the consequences when we do not trust in this gospel? And he lays them out in this wild story in verses 18 through 20. You throw this gauntlet down, you expose false teachers, and things begin to happen. Action is demanded. Now, if you've experienced this, if you've seen putting the gospel over and against um, a, a church or a friendship or, or thoughts in your mind, you understand the seriousness of what Paul's about to say. He's saying we take this seriously because people's lives are at stake. We don't mess around with false teaching and we don't mess around with false teachers because eternity is at stake. And when people's faith is being shipwrecked, The church moves in and it acts. And that's what's being described in these following verses. Paul says there are two casualties. I'm talking about a bunch of false teachers out here in and through and passing through Ephesus. But here are two men, Hymenius and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul, with the help of the church, has handed them over to Satan. Now, in closing, I just want to ask two questions about this. I just want to ask, what exactly does this mean? What does it mean to hand people over to Satan? How do I know that that's not going to happen to me? Um, And how does this fit with Jesus' perfect patience? 
We just talked about Jesus' patience. Now two men are being ousted. How do, you, how do you fit those two things together? Well, what are we talking about here when we say handing over to Satan? Passages like 1 Timothy 1, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5 describe what's happening here. And this is church discipline. If you have someone in our midst who is living in, doing false living, they're living in sin or false teaching, and they're unrepentant about it, not, not us as believers who are confessing our sin and want to change, but someone who is vigilant and unrepentant in false living or false teaching. They're approached by one brother and then by two brothers and then by the entire church. And if they do not listen, they are put out from our fellowship and treated as an unbeliever. Right? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. And then, of course, the way you treat an unbeliever is with love and with joy and respect and tell them about the mercy of God. But they're removed from our fellowship and they are no longer called a Christian by us and they no longer have access to the Lord's Supper. What's happened is they've left the kingdom of Jesus and his church and they are now in the domain of Satan, right? Ephesians tells us that this world is under the principalities and the powers of Satan. The war is lost, but the battle is raging. And if you are removed from Columbia Presbyterian Church through discipline, you are in the hands of Satan. That's where you are. You're in his domain. You know, it's interesting that John Calvin, as he reflected on the nature of the church, he said, there are three marks that need to be true of every single church. If you want to call a church a church and not a parachurch or something else, it's got to have three things. The first is, it needs to teach the word of God. It needs to be people who read and teach and pray through the word of God. Secondly, we need to practice the sacraments, right? The church is the only place in the world should be the only place in the world that you can be baptized and receive the Lord's Supper. We practice sacraments. And you know what he said the third defining mark of a church is? It's discipline. Because this is not just an open gathering for anyone. It is when we gather in this setting. But membership to a church is guarded by those who believe and trust in Jesus. One of the marks of a true church is church discipline. Okay, so these men have been removed from fellowship And we've just spent all this time before this talking about the patience of Jesus. So I think it's a fair question to ask to say, how do these two things fit together? How can you speak in one breath about the patience of Jesus and another breath about two men who are being handed over to Satan? Well, these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've charted a course of destruction. I want to make clear it's not because these men are sinners. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner. And the trustworthy statement is true. Jesus came to save sinners. These two men are unrepentant in their sin and unrepentant in their false teaching and they are determined to continue it and they've been rebuked and haven't heeded and where talk fails, action needs to happen and the church, Paul at the helm, has removed them, ousted them from the fellowship. Now you're talking about a church plant in Ephesus and so we don't know the size of this church. We don't know if it met in one house or two but we're talking about 30, 40, maybe 50 people You remove two men from its midst, and these men are are fathers, they're brothers, they're sons. This is a a dark hour for a church to take two of its members, you know, five or ten percent of its congregation, and remove it and treat these men like unbelievers. This is a dark hour for the church in Ephesus. But I want you to see, in the midst of this, the perfect patience of Jesus. I want you to watch that the same gospel we just talked about shines brightly in the darkest hour of this church. Look at verse 20. 
Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul is saying, if these men were bent on blasphemy, if they were going to be judged, if this was a a final punishment for them, there's nothing for them to learn. Men who are bent on destruction, who are going to spend eternity in torment in hell, they do not need to learn anything. They will commit blasphemy for the rest of their lives, eternal lives. These men are not so. These men are being disciplined so that they will be restored to the fellowship. Paul's hope is, when I put these men outside the church, when they see what they miss in the gospel and the Lord's Supper and fellowship with with other believers, they will learn not to blaspheme in the same way that Paul, according to verse 15, had to learn not to blaspheme. Paul knows what it's like to be blasphemous. He puts these men out so that they will be restored. And in that, you see the perfect patience of Jesus. Because even two men who are attempting to lead other people astray from the gospel, in my mind, that's the worst sin that you can commit, is to lead another person astray from the good news of the gospel. Even in that sin, Jesus is standing with arms outstretched, saying my gospel is as relevant for you who have made a shipwreck of your faith, who have led other people astray, who have driven yourself headlong into immorality. It's as true for you as it is for anybody. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'm going to give you rest. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, you call us into the fray. You call us to a good warfare that starts with being very serious and very dogged about hanging on to this kind of gospel with white knuckles. Lord, you can do that in our fellowship. Make us a people who love and live your gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.